All right, amen. Good to see you out here tonight. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, we're going to read one verse, verse 29. Exodus chapter 32, verse 29. And when you locate that, if you would, please go ahead and stand with me. Stretch your legs one last time. And I do want to emphasize that again. I emphasized it yesterday morning. You did well. I didn't emphasize it last night, and we had a mini, a mini parade going on. And uh, so, and you ushers need to help me. If you're going out and you're coming back in, don't leave on the second row. If you have an emergency, and come back to the second row. Makes common sense, doesn't it? Amen? I mean, I don't want you to leave at all if you can help it, but if you have an emergency you cannot avoid, don't go out from the second or third row and then disrupt the service twice. You can hear just as well on the back row. Amen? I'd like everybody to sit on the front row because I want you right up here where I can get at you. But I, I really need your help on these things as far as the service is concerned. Exodus chapter 32, and verse 29. I'm not going to take time to talk about specific books tonight. If you haven't gone by the table and looked it over, there's a lot of new stuff. But I seriously doubt that anybody here has all of the old stuff. I mean, the stuff that's been in print for a while. You may have some of it, but all of it's Bible-based. It's all helpful. And so you take a few moments and look at that at the close of the service night. Exodus 32, verse 29. Bible says, For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for the word of God. Pray you'd bless it to our hearing. And Lord, I yield to you, please. Would you fill and use me tonight as an instrument to accomplish your will? If there be a lost one, please draw that one to yourself. And Lord, would you do a work in the hearts of your people and help us to fill your hand and honor you with our lives. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for what's accomplished. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses had been in the mount earlier in the chapter. The Bible tells us the people of God, the children of Israel, said, uh, Moses, we're afraid of God. You go on up, find out what he says, and all that the Lord commands us, we will do. But before Moses ever got back from the mount, they had already engaged in an idolatrous worship service and they were ready to go back to Egypt before he even got down with the message. And the Bible tells us in about verse 6 or 7 that God told Moses in the mount, get you down to your people. He said, they're not mine, Moses, they're yours. Get you down to your people. They have already turned aside. These people vowed to do whatever God commanded them to do, and they didn't have the patience to wait until the man of God got back from the mount with the message. Uh, they were already to go back to Egypt, already engaging in idolatry and pagan worship. And when Moses was on his way back down the mount, he understood judgment was determined against these people. God told him, he said, get out from among them. He said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Let me interpret that for you. God was angry with them. He said, I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. And Moses put his own life on the line in intercession. In Exodus 32 and verse 32, he said, Yet now, if thou, wilt for, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and there's a line in your King James Bible implying that he broke down mid-sentence and didn't complete the sentence, and then he got his composure and said, And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. He said, God, please spare them for my sake, and if you won't spare them, go ahead and kill me with them. That's a pretty bold prayer when God was angry, because I assure you that God got along pretty well before Moses showed up, and he got along pretty well after Moses was gone, and he certainly used Moses while he was alive, 
But Moses came and put himself on the altar as a sacrifice, pleading with God in behalf of these people. And the Bible tells us that God told Moses as he interceded, he said, I'm not just going to spare them all. But he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give them one more chance. He said, I'm going to let you go through the camp. And your message is this, who is on the Lord's side? That's your message. Moses went through the camp, preached the message, who was on the Lord's side? Don't you know that it was a resounding uh, message or answer from all the crowd? We are on the Lord's side. Doesn't everybody want to give God lip service? If I said in this room tonight, who is on the Lord's side? I seriously doubt there would be anybody that would say, not me. Everybody would give lip service to it, and these people gave lip service. But God said, I don't just want lip service. This people honoreth me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctors the command of the men. He said, they give me lip service, but not life service. And uh, God said, okay, everybody claims to be on my side. Here's the acid test. He said, strap your sword on your side. Consecrate yourselves. The word consecrate means to fill the hand. It means to be the instrument that God uses. In this particular case, judgment was determined against those who would not repent. Judgment was determined against those who continued and persisted in their idolatry and God told them, he said, strap your sword on your side. And I want you to go through the camp, fill my hand. He said, every man upon his son and upon his brothers. What does that mean? That means if they're engaging in idolatry, if they will not repent, then you will be the instrument of judgment. He said, you're not just going to tell me you're on my side. Huh? You know, God's looking for some action out of some people. Everybody gives lip service. Oh, I, am, I love Jesus. How much do you love him? Love him enough to serve him? Love him enough to be faithful to the house of God? Love him enough to live a separated life? Love him enough to walk with him and have a prayer time? You love him enough to live in that book? You love him enough to tell others about him and be a soul winner, a witness for Christ? Just how much do you love him? You know, we talked last night in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about those who uh, love pleasure more. They're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They love God some, but they love pleasure more. Pleasure and self-will takes preeminence to the will of God. And according to Colossians chapter 1, he's supposed to have the preeminence in everything. That means he has first place. Uh, if he has the preeminence, he'll never get squeezed out. You always have time in every day for one thing. And if he is the main thing, the first thing, he will never get squeezed out. So if you come to the end of the day and hadn't had your devotional life, you come to the end of the day and hadn't served God, he's not first in your life. You got that? You may give him lip service, but life service, consecration, means to fill the to, to be the instrument that God uses you know, most of us, our prayer is, oh, God, give me your power so I can. And God's response to that is this. You don't need my power so you can. I need your body so I can. And when you fill my hand, you will lack no power to achieve what needs to be done. God wants to use us. And so he tells us, consecrate yourselves and by the way, when he said yourselves, it creates personal responsibility. Consecrate yourselves. Sounds to me like I have to make a choice. Sounds to me like if I consecrate myself, then there's some personal responsibility. Consecrate yourselves today, not tomorrow, not next week, not when it's convenient. Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Who's he talking to? Even every man upon his son, upon his brother, regardless of what the price is, regardless of what the task is, regardless of what the will of God is, I am to fill his hand today, 
consecrate yourselves to the Lord uh, this day, even every man upon his son, upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. If I understand that verse, consecration produces immediate blessing. But can I say to you that if I'm going to fill the hand of God, God's pretty particular about what he has in his hand. God is holy, and he does not embrace what is unholy. He does not allow me to come on my own terms. I cannot fill God's hand on my terms. I have to come like Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9 and verse 6 when he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He acknowledged the divine authority of God first. And then he said, uh, I don't have any terms of my own. I surrender all. Whatever you want. He didn't say, Lord, here's what I'd like to do. He didn't say, Lord, I'll do anything but this. Did you ever notice how often people say that? Why do you even say I'd, I'd do anything but that? Could it be that that is the only thing God's really dealing with you about? Huh? Amen. I'd do anything but that. And the reason you're worried about that is because that is what God is dealing with your heart about and you're resisting kicking against the pricks as we talked about yesterday, uh, re resisting the Spirit of God. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, he said, we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. So instead of me deciding what I want to do, I need to fill the hand of God and let him do with me what he will. I assure you that whatever God chooses to do with me is best for me and best for those around me. But I first have to, you can't, you can't consecrate what has not first been redeemed. I mean, I have to be redeemed by blood before I can fill the hand of God. And I'm not going to fill God's hand with worldliness and carnality and self-will. Not going to happen. I'm not going to fill God's hand with carnality and flesh. You know, the Bible gives us in the New Testament, and, and if you remember, the Bible tells us in the book of Numbers chapter 8, about verse 22, 23, it tells us about the Levites that they themselves were an offering to God. I'm not supposed to give God an offering of something. I am the offering in consecration. By the way, that's not just Old Testament teaching. That's New Testament too. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, the word consecration does not appear there, but the teaching certainly does. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, to beseech somebody is to implead them uh, to make a strong appeal. I beseech you therefore, brethren, He's talking to save people, those that are redeemed by blood, those that according to John 1 and verse 12 are in the family of God, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. He said in consecration, I make a presentation. That presentation is to God. If we made it a presentation tonight of some kind, two things would be true. Number one, our, our presentation would be an attempt to honor somebody. And if we made a presentation, we would make a presentation of something that was pleasing to them. And the Bible says we're supposed to present our bodies, not just our minds, not just our soul, you say, I'm saved. That's wonderful. And beside this, you know, the Bible says, uh, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. So I put my faith in Christ. Wonderful. And if you did and received him as your Savior and you're born into the family, this verse is talking to you. God wants you as a child of God to live a consecrated life and fill his hand. But he goes on and tells us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know the difference between a living sacrifice and a dying sacrifice? A dying sacrifice is presented one time. A living sacrifice has to be offered every day, afresh and anew. 
I have to consecrate my life every day because I wake up as backslidden each morning as I did the previous morning. And if I don't do something about it, it'll get worse as the day wears on. It won't correct itself. I need to choose to fill the hand of God. He said a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So he said if it's not holy, it's not acceptable as a sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. You ever hear somebody say, well, what's so bad about? Now you can put a thousand endings to that. It all depends on what you're trying to justify at the moment. Well, what's so bad about this? And what's so bad about that? Let me answer your question with a question. Jesus did that quite frequently, you know. What verse in the Bible says, Be ye not so bad, for I'm not so bad. I could not find that in my King James Bible. However, I did find in 1 Peter 1 and verse 16 where he said, Be ye holy. Why? For I am holy. And in Amos chapter 3 and verse 3, he asked the question, Can two walk together except they be agreed? I have to get an agreement with him. I'm not going to talk him into going where I'm going. The Bible says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. God charted the course. They walked with him. Adam and Eve didn't chart the course and invite God to tag along. They chose to walk where God walked and had that sweet communion and fellowship until sin entered and destroyed it. If I'm going to walk with God, I have to get in harmony with Him and He is holy. So I can't be sinless. Uh, sinlessness and holiness are not one and the same. God is sinless. But he says that he has given us the means to live a holy life. God's commands are his enablings. And if he's commanded me to be holy, I can. Because the word holy and the word sanctify come from the same root word. And to sanctify means to set something apart or to devote it. Well, I can't be a perfect husband, but I can be a devoted husband. Huh? Amen. I can't be a perfect sinless believer, but I can be a devoted believer. I can be surrendered to God. I can walk in paths of righteousness. I can live in the Spirit. I can obey the Scriptures. I can be a doer, not just a hearer of the Word of God. And by the way, he expects me to. So he said, I beseech you, talking to you and me, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present, you make a presentation, present your bodies, a living sacrifice. And he said, it's going to have to be holy to be acceptable. And then he said, which is your reasonable service. Which is your reasonable service. Uh, do you realize that when I fill the hand of God in consecration, I'm not making some big sacrifice. I'm just doing what's right to do. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he said, uh, knowing that we're not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold in our vain conversation, verse 19 says, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, you and I have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. When he said it's our reasonable service, let me, let me just deal with it a minute. He said uh, to those carnal Corinthians, he said, what? What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are but with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I've been bought with a price. And according to 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, I've been purchased with blood. If you're saved tonight, you have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God redeemed you, and the word redeem means purchased. We were purchased out of the slave market of sin, never again to return and be on the block. Never to be up for sale again. Never to be up for grabs. Never to be in the hand of the enemy. But 
do you realize when God purchased me, he paid more for me than I am worth on my best day. And you only have one best day. All the rest of them are inferior. And God paid more for you at Calvary than you are worth on your best day. But if you're saved, you've been purchased. Okay, let me ask you a question. Um, how many of you ever purchased something? Well, some of you haven't been out in a while, huh? Huh? Now, when you purchased whatever it was, did you purchase it just so you could say, I have one of those? No? So when you purchased something, you purchased it so you could... You, I see when you buy something, you buy it so you can use it. And you think God purchased you just so he could say, I have one of those. Think a lot of yourself, don't you? Huh? God had more in mind than just possession. He intended for our lives to count for the glory of God, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You'll never do that without first filling the hand of God and living in his power and the fullness of his blessing. God's blessing's in his hand. I can humble myself. I can fill the hand. But I have to be clean enough to fill the hand of a holy God. I have to be separated from the world and sin unto God. So he tells us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, reformed affects my outward appearance. It means I'm shaped in the mold of the world. I let the world press me into a mold, and I become just like them. Be not conformed. But be transformed. Transformation also changes my outward appearance, but it changes it from the inside out instead of the outside in. Huh? He said, by the renewing of your mind. In Proverbs 23 and verse 7, the Bible says, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So it's very important that I think right. And if I'm going to think right, I need to fill my mind with the word of God. Because it's always right. So he tells us that I can be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And he said my mind can be renewed with the word of God that's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. When he said it's quick, he's talking about the fact that it has life. This book, unlike all other books, it's alive. It's not just a good book, not just a perfect book. It's alive. The words that I speak into you, they are spirit and they are life. According to John 6 and verse 63, the Lord Jesus made that clear. But he tells us that it's my reasonable service to give myself a living sacrifice because I've been purchased with blood. God paid more for me than I'm worth. He holds title and deed to my life. Okay, suppose, let's just suppose for a moment that I sell you a car. I'm not a car salesman, I sell you my vehicle and uh, I sign off the title, you sign on, you pay me the full amount, I give you a bill of sale dated and signed. So you have, I have the money, you have the bill of sale. I have signed off the title, you have signed on. We did this at the notary, and uh, it's already notarized and on the way to the state capitol. So, and you have your little pink or yellow slip, whatever they do in New Mexico, your temporary owner's card. At this point in the, trans, in the transaction, who does the vehicle legally belong to, the seller or the buyer at this moment? The buyer. I have the money, you have the bill of sale, I signed off, you signed on, it's notarized, you have your temporary owner card. The only problem is this. We did all this business 
and the vehicle is still sitting in my driveway, of course. So about two hours after we handle the legal transaction, and it is legally yours. You have made the purchase legitimately. It's yours. About two hours later, you come by and knock on my door. I come to the door and I look at you and say, yeah, what do you want? And you say, well, <laughs> I came to get my car. That's what you mean, your car. You say, well, I bought it. You said you wanted to sell it. Well, I did want to sell it. I needed the money. But I want to keep driving it, too. What do you call a guy like that? I'm independent. I mean, I'm a crook. Amen. Isn't that what we want? We want to be redeemed, and we desperately need to be redeemed. And then we want to continue as though the purchase had never taken place. We want to act like we're our own instead of his. We want to live for our interest instead of his glory. We want to do what we please instead of filling his hand. Huh? So he tells us that our body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in us and we have been bought with a price. It's about time you and I start acting like we've been purchased with blood, if we have. And if you haven't been, you're in worse shape than the rest of us because you're still lost on your way to hell without a Savior. And your only hope is in Jesus Christ and a born-again experience. His blood redemption is the only way you'll ever escape hell. But to those of us that have that transaction settled, that's not the finish line, that's the starting line. When a young couple comes to the marriage altar and they say, I do, it's not all over. Let me think about that. Huh? It's not all over, it just got started. They didn't say, I do, so they could say, I did that. I did that one time. Huh? That's where we come to that Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, made partakers of divine nature, verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and the virtue knowledge. He said, and beside this, he said, you put your faith in Christ. That's wonderful. And beside this, you so well, I said I do one time. And beside this, that's it. That's all you got. A decision you made years ago, and it didn't lead to a relationship, and it didn't produce any fruit, and it didn't develop a walk. Maybe something's missing. Huh? So the Bible declares in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Exodus 32 and verse 29, Moses commanded them, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Even every man upon his son, upon his brother. When we come to the New Testament, we have a very similar passage of Scripture in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And the premise for that is in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. But you understand, there is an outward appearance that goes along with consecration. Consecration begins with the heart and me feeling the hand of God. But can I tell you that according to Exodus chapter 28 and verse 3, the Bible talks about garments of consecration. I want you to look up here. See this? This is a garment. It's not in my heart. It's on the outside. It's visible. There are biblical standards that tell consecrated people how to identify with their Lord in his book. There are garments of consecration. So if there are garments of consecration, there are also garments of rebellion. Huh? If there are holy garments, there are worldly garments. You know, the Bible warns. He, in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about the danger of wolves in sheep's clothing. I think we have another problem. We have a bunch of sheep in wolves' clothing. Huh? We have a bunch of people who are redeemed that dress just like the lost crowd. And somehow they think they have a free pass because society has become so corrupt and vile. It's so messed up, you can be pretty backslidden and look pretty good compared to them. But they are not the standard. The Bible is the standard. The Word of God is the standard. You know, 
There are garments of consecration, and God wants my outward appearance to glorify Him. And, um, you know, suppose you swear out to my buddy. I'm not according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. He purchased you body and spirit. And you're to give your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Be a wonderful thing if you're claiming consecration, if somebody could see it and not just hear about it. Be wonderful if your appearance didn't contradict what you claim, your profession. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 is one of those passages that people oftentimes try to use to justify worldliness. It says that man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. There is nothing in that text that implies that God is disinterested in the outside. He's just not deceived. Do you know the context of that passage? It was when the the prophet was going to anoint David's elder brother, Eliab, who was tall, dark, and handsome. And God said, don't look on his countenance or the height of his stature. Man looketh on the outward appearance. God looketh on the heart and what? He was telling Samuel is, he's not the one. He doesn't have the heart for it. It starts in here, but it does show up on the outside. But can I tell you, the Bible says, man looketh on the outward appearance. No man can see your heart. The only thing they can see is the outside. And it does say, man looketh on the outward appearance. So if I'm going to have a testimony in this world... And an impact for God, the outside has to be right. The inside first, and the outside follows. You know, in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus was rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, uh, there are people that look at that passage, and Jesus said, you wash the outside of the cup and the platter, and the inside's full of filthiness, excess, and that kind of thing, extortion. And then he said this. They always stop reading there. And act like Jesus was only interested on the, about the inside. The very next statement Jesus made, he said, cleanse or wash first the inside of the cup and platter that the outside may be clean also. If I understand that verse, it's possible for me to be corrupt in my heart and cover it with some kind of religious veneer. But it's not possible for me to be right in my heart without it showing up on the outside. He said, if I cleanse the inside first, the outside shall be clean also. But you could hypocritically cover your sin with religious veneer. Don't we all know what to say and how to act and what we're supposed to say and do? Don't we know how to put on uh, that spiritual front when it's not real? Huh? Amen. Don't look at me like that. So he tells us that this thing called consecration that he's commanded, the first thing he said is get your heart right. Fill the hand of God. Surrender. And you know if God has your heart, the outside will get in line and it won't be a big problem. You know, if God has my heart and I'm really in, I love the Lord and I want to please Him, and then I find out what pleases Him, it doesn't offend me. You know, look, ladies, listen to me. You're not supposed to be dressing for every man. You're supposed to be dressing for one man, your husband, if you're married. Amen. And by the way, we're not supposed to be fitting in with all of society dressing to please them. We have one to please. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, the one whose blood was shed, the one who purchased us out of the slave market of sin, the one who redeemed us with his own blood. So he tells us there is an outward appearance. Now suppose, suppose that I have a rental house. And uh, you are the occupant. What do they call me? I'm the landlord. That means I hold title and deed. Now, I'm not the one living in this house, but I do own it. It is my property. Agreed? So, 
Suppose you, as the renter, decide that you're going to cut a door where there's a window. And you are going to paint it purple with pink polka dots. Because that's what you like. Now, how do you think I'm going to react to that when you start defacing my property? I own this. Yes, you are the occupant. Can I tell you, you start doing that to my property, you're going to get an eviction notice. Are you getting the message? Your body is not your own. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be a reproach to Christ and refuse to get and he can go ahead and take you home early. You're not going to die lost and go to hell because you can't lose eternal life. Huh? And God first speaks through his word. And then he spanks through chastisement. And then he scourges, according to Hebrews chapter 12, and scourging leaves scars. And then he separates and he said, there is a sin in the death. I did not say that you should pray for it. He said, there's a point when people cross the line, no use even, your, your prayers are not going to change the outcome. Are you listening? Hey, listen to me, folks. God's serious about this stuff of consecration. He didn't give his son to redeem you so you could be a reproach and dishonor him and live in sin. That's not what God had in mind. We're not talking about conditions of salvation. We're talking about what God had in mind and what the will of God is for believers. Will of God is to consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son, upon his brother. You know, if uh, you're going to consecrate, there's something else that goes along with that. According to Numbers chapter 6, where he talks about the vows of a Nazarite, and he talks about the Nazarite's consecration to God, vows and consecration go together. Now hear me, folks. I don't know what's going on in America today. But I've never seen so many people that never, ever, ever use an altar. And I'm not here to count noses, and it's not about my ego to say everybody came forward. But there are messages that are Bible-based that are definitely for everybody. And folks stand back there like there's nothing going on in their lives. Huh? Well, if there's not, maybe you ought to come forward and find out why God never speaks to you. Maybe you don't have an ear. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Maybe you're still lost. Maybe you can't hear the voice of the Spirit. Maybe you need to be saved. But if you're a born-again Christian, you're going to tell me you sit through church 52 weeks a year and God never speaks to your heart and it never compels you to make a decision. You don't see the need to humble yourself. No wonder America's going to hell. If they watch us, they'll think you have to be strange to use an altar. There's ever going to be revival. The altars will be flooded, not for perception, but with people having tender hearts who sincerely want to be more for God. They're not satisfied. They're not content. And they know they need to make some vows. In Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 4, he said, When thou vowest a vow, not if. When thou vowest a vow, defer not to pay it, for the Lord hath no pleasure in fools. He said it's foolish to make lighthearted vows, but it's even more foolish to never make a vow at all, to never attempt to be anything. He said, well, I just don't know if I could live up to it. Well, if it's the will of God, it can be done. Huh? And I mean, if you're shooting at nothing and you hit it, that's a great achievement. You ought to really be satisfied because you can always hit that goal. Nothing. I'm a Nothing. I'm going to try nothing. I'm going to veil nothing. I'm going to attempt nothing. Well, you'll be a great success if that's all you're trying to do. But everybody around you dying their sin because you won't even attempt anything. You know, it's better to try and fail than to never try. Huh? Kind of like boy that was shooting BB gun up in the sky. At night, a guy came along and he said, what are you doing, son? He said, I'm trying to shoot the moon. He said, you're never going to hit the moon from here. He said, get closer than you are, ain't it? Huh? Yeah, I mean, you ought to at least try something. It'd be good if you attempted something, no matter how impossible it may appear. But the Bible tells us there are some things possible. I can 
feel the hand of God. That's possible. I can put on the garments of consecration. That's possible. I can make holy vows. That's possible. And can I say to you that this thing of consecration also has to do with devotion. In Micah 4 and verse 13, he's talking about the spoils of war being devoted to God. In other words, instead of me consuming them like Achan who took the spoils that belonged to God, the wedge of gold and silver and the Babylonish garment and hit him in the floor of his tent, dug a hole, buried him. Now listen to me. They conquered ten cities when they came in. Jericho was the first, and the first fruits always belongs to God. God did not require the spoil of the other nine cities. The first city, all the spoil was his. When they stole what was devoted, it was a major problem. When you and I steal what's supposed to be devoted to God, it is a major problem. And I said earlier, you know, I, I can't be a perfect husband, but I can be a faithful husband, a devoted husband. And by the way, if I'm a devoted husband, not only do I not commit adultery, I don't flirt. It's not that you don't go into some wicked sin. You don't even get yourself in a position where that's possible. Can I tell you that most of God's people are pretty flirtatious with the world. They have unholy alliances and situations that they should not be in. They live in constant temptation and then try to avoid sin. Matthew 26 and verse 41, he said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He didn't say that you enter not into sin. He said that you enter not into temptation. He's telling us how to avoid temptation. Why? Because he knows a bunch of sinners cannot live in constant temptation and avoid sin. So he teaches us how to avoid temptation. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So if I watch and pray and I'm devoted to God and he has my undivided attention, while he has my attention, I won't be tempted. No man's tempted of God. Are you listening? But God's going to have to have my attention looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So the Bible tells us some things that are essential to consecration. Consecration is not a request. It is a command. Consecrate yourselves. Personal responsibility. Today, we know the urgency of salvation because... None of us are sure of a midnight tonight, much less a tomorrow. And if we die lost, we're going to a literal burning hell. So salvation is an emergency. But God is no less urgent about the matter of us filling his hand than he is about salvation. God wants me as a born-again child of God to fill his hand today. Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man. Upon his son, upon his brother, maybe a, may a praise may not be what you're excited about. But it will certainly be what glorifies God and it will be what brings others to Christ and it will be what is best for you and those you love. You can count on that being true. But he said it has to do with my heart being right, filling his hand. It has to do with the outward appearance of consecration, getting the inside and the outside right. It has to do with holy vows. And listen to me, folks, you're never going to live a consecrated life if you never use an altar. If you never make decisions where you're too proud to walk an aisle, now if you have physical health issues and can't walk an aisle, God knows that, but I'm telling you, most of the time it's our pride, our self-righteousness, our contentment with less than God's best that keeps us from humbly kneeling at an altar and asking God to do a supernatural work in our lives. And girls, listen to me. Don't talk. Just listen and look up here. I'm preaching to you too. So the Bible tells us that consecration is important. It is the purpose of salvation. He did not purchase me so I could live carnal. He purchased me so it would be possible for me to fill his hand. 
And he intended for us to do that. And if we're not careful, we will waste our lives and our influence operating in the flesh outside of his hand. We operate without his blessing. We operate without his power. We operate without that sweet communion that he intended for us to have. You know, God, here's something you need to understand. God is not a consumer. What do you mean by that? I mean, whatever's in God's hand, he multiplies. He doesn't use it up. You and I, we are consumers. Got water flying in room, broke the mic off. <laughs> we are consumers. When we're done with something, it's history. That's the way it goes. Uh, you know, that lad brought his lunch and gave it to Jesus, five loaves, barley loaves. That's what the poor folk ate. Two fishes. And Jesus took and blessed and break and gave to the disciples. The disciples gave to the multitude, 5,000 men besides women and children. They all ate and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained, 12 baskets full. Wait a minute, hold it. You saw it in that great one for each of the apostles. Oh, no. All 12 of them for the giver. Give and it should be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men given to your bosom. With the same measure you meet with all shall it be measured to you again. That boy didn't start out with one basket full. And it looked like he couldn't make a difference. And if it was up to him and him alone, he couldn't. But when he took what he had and put it in the hand of Jesus, it was enough to make a difference. And he came away after the need was met. 12 times better off than he came into it. Huh? God is not a consumer. When I put something in his hand, he always multiplies it. He never diminishes it. I can trust him with my finances. I can trust him with my life. I can trust him with everything. And when I put it in his hand, it will never, ever be diminished. It will always be multiplied but when we come to God, it has to do with you and I giving him a carte blanche and we, we stop trying to negotiate. Lord, I'll do this if you'll do that. We need to come like Paul did. We talked about that early in the message, Acts 9. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Just surrender. Quit trying to tell God what to do with you. Quit acting like you know better than he knows. Do you honestly think you know better than good? Do you truly think you can instruct the Creator and give Him a better plan than He already has for you? Or would it be better just to surrender and fill the hand of God and find out what He has for you? Huh? Consecration to fill the hand of God. You know, consecration begins where self-interest ends and it ends where self-interest begins. If you remember in Luke 9, verse 59 to 62, Jesus was calling disciples, and one man said, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest, but let me first. What? Lord, me first. Something wrong with that? I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest, but let me first. You say, yeah, preacher, but he said, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead, but come thou and follow me. You say, well, that was pretty cruel. He wouldn't let the man go to his daddy's funeral. His daddy hadn't died. What the boy was saying was, let me stay home until my father dies. And when my father dies and I get my part of the inheritance, I'll be set for life, and then I'll serve you. But I'm not going now. If I leave now and my father dies in my absence, my brethren will seize the inheritance and then all I'll have is you. Well, wouldn't that be tough? Huh? So yet this thing called consecration, I have to trust God. It's by faith like salvation is by grace through faith. It's based on the promises of God like salvation is based on the promises of God. It brings blessing above and beyond anything we can imagine. And he said to us, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son, upon his brother. You know, F.B. Meyer testified that at one point in his life, the Lord was dealing with him about consecration. 
And Meyer argued with the Lord on his knees in his office. And he said, Lord, I'll give you every key to every room of my life, but that one key, just let me keep that one key. And he said as he argued with God in his prayer time and the Lord was dealing with him, he said he felt that sweet presence of God escaping the room. And he threw himself on his face and said, God, I'll give you all the keys. And his testimony was that from that day to this, I've lived in the fullness of the blessing of God. So glad that I didn't hold a key and lose his presence. I'm glad I surrendered it all. You better decide what you're giving up to hold on to that one key. Better decide what it is that you're missing out on to maintain control of that area and refuse to fill his hand, refuse to consecrate your life. You know, D.L. Moody heard a man say, the world has yet to see what God could do with a man who was wholly yielded to him. Moody was so moved by that statement, he got on his face and said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. Moody had a grade school education. When he preached, he butchered the king's English. But he was sold out to God and shook two continents, America and England, and saw over a million souls come to Jesus Christ. You know, you say, I don't have much to offer. You might have more than you think. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever used a shoe, the heel of a shoe, for a hammer? Ever done that? Why did you, wouldn't a hammer work better? Well, if a hammer worked better, why did you use a shoe? Because there was no hammer available, but a shoe was near at hand. And you used what was near at hand. Can I tell you, God uses what's near at hand. I may not have much to offer, but if I stay near at hand and fill the hand of God, He will do amazing things in and through me, in and through you. Things that exceed our fondest imagination, and it's clear that it wasn't us. It's clear that it was God. Ah, but I need to live that consecrated life. Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. I wonder tonight how many folks in this crowd can honestly say, Preacher, if I died where I sit right now, I am 100% sure that I am born again on my way to heaven for a Bible reason. Now, I'm going to ask you to be honest, and if there's any doubt at all, please don't sit there and raise your hand. Tell me you're sure when you're not.